Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Kestutis Kupšić, a member of the European Economic and Social Committee, the Vice President of the Lithuanian Consumer Alliance, and the Director of the Association for Honesty in Banking. In his own words, Kestutis is a sustainable finance, clean mobility, and renewable energy enthusiast devoted to unified Europe. Kestutis, welcome. Hi, Marin. You said in a LinkedIn post uh, recently that you learned to love climate change when you started seeing it as an opportunity. Can you tell us more about your background, your vision, and how you became a member of the European Economic and Social Committee, putting climate change as an opportunity for growth for Europe? Oh, yeah. Um, thank you for that, uh, Marine. Uh, it's a great introduction. And um, yes, definitely the Uh, climate change phenomenon is uh, something which is normally perceived uh, as a, a truly uh, negative and uh, life-threatening thing. But uh, it's uh, not so uncommon to search for some uh, silver lining in every negative phenomenon. And in my case, I was trying to think about that, how it will possibly change our society and our world. Imagine now if there is no climate change um, threat and uh, let's say we continue with this um, search for uh, new resources and uh, exploiting earth and uh, building a society which uh, produces more and more and more. And in the end, we potentially end with uh, something like of a capitalism jungle. And that would be really some type of world you would uh, not uh, very much like to live in. And In my feeling, talking about things in, let's say, 50 years perspective, it looks like if this, if, if humanity is now faced with this type of uh, challenge, it is uh, now evident that we will have to change the uh, underlying economic system somehow in order to survive. So it uh, leads me to, to this vision and probably more uh, of a hope that we may end up after all the necessary reforms, all the necessary changes are made, we may end up with a completely or at least a significantly different economic system from the current uh, liberal capitalism. And it, it gives me uh, hope for more changes, not just, uh, you know, getting rid of the extra greenhouse gas uh, emissions, uh, whatever, but uh, we will have to change uh, finance, we will have to change uh, the produce and uh, distribute uh, products. And uh, going to your question, how it uh, happened that a person like uh, me is uh, now uh, helping to provide um, opinions to European co-legislators, and uh, that's uh, what exactly the European Economic and Social Committee does. It all started from uh, essentially me joining the... So it was back in 2011 when I joined the NGO, uh, which, uh, as you properly uh, titled is a small association for honesty in banking 
So it developed from that time that I was more and more immersed into uh, not-for-profit activities. And um, uh, as you know, or probably um, it has to be explained because not all your listeners know about the committee, uh, the, the Economic and Social Committee is a specific body, which is advisory body, providing um, consultations, providing advice to to the Commission, to the Parliament, to the Council, uh, when it comes to new um, uh, legislative initiatives, all those EU bodies have to ask for advice, uh, sending us letters uh, to to, pro- to ask to provide the, the advice uh, for for them, uh, as they uh, are obliged by the Lisbon Agreement, yeah, the Lisbon uh, Treaty. So it's a body which provides this type of advice, and uh, it combines. Um, messages from uh, three big groups. One is employers, another is workers, and uh, the third group is uh, so-called Diversity Europe group, which unites many different uh, species, so to say, of NGOs and of uh, specific professional associations of sometimes it could be farmers, it could be um, uh, families, it could be church organizations, truly very different kind. And that uh, third group is uh, is my home now for the next five years. <laughs> I'm uh, kind of representative elected uh, from Lithuanian side to be uh, inside of the delegation, which is now uh, part of this uh, 300 plus uh, people committee. And we, we uh, converse um, in, in the process of drafting the opinion and uh, we search for compromise, we search for best ways to combine our uh, different expertise and provide uh, this uh, civil society uh, view to the commission and the parliament and the council. So it goes uh, like uh, in 10 years, you can <laughs> you can make uh, this type of career from uh, a specific area in your country where you in, are involved into something which... Uh, is uh, truly um, a problem you're trying to solve as an NGO, and then you may uh, essentially kind of end up uh, doing some European policy work uh, in Brussels. That's amazing because you are truly bridging the gaps between the needs of the population and also from Lithuania and EU policy making that actually affects, yeah, the 470 million Europeans, but also the rest of the world, given the place of the European Union as a global economic leader. So that's really interesting to see how the European Union tries to be closer to their people and closer to the actual needs, etc. So that is really interesting. And in particular, this podcast is about sustainability also because I'm a European Climate Pact ambassador and the idea of this Climate Pact is to bridge the gaps and make sure that everybody knows about sustainability and what we can achieve as individuals to heal the planet and make sure that people can still live on it because we don't have any other home, actually. So actually, I was really interested in your experience in the economic issues, finance, and consumer perspectives. So that's exactly the topic that you're touching upon at the European Economic and Social Committee, but also the topic that you, you've you been working on for the past 10 years. So yes. Do you make sure that when you take decisions or when you build policy with the European Economic and Social Committee, how do you make sure that the core concepts of sustainability, like doing good for the people and the planet, is or are preserved along the way? For instance, 
in the taxonomy discussion for the listeners who might not know it, but the taxonomy is like a European classification system establishing a list of environmentally sustainable economic activities. And it should trigger sustainable investment and help implement the European Green Deal. So it will help Europe to become truly carbon neutral by 2050. So how do you make sure that those concepts stays along the way? How do you preserve, I would say, the freshness and the pureness of the core message as a policymaker? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an ambition a bit uh, too high. <laughs> Maybe it's not so much on us, but uh, actually we are trying to influence the policy debate in the EU in many different ways. So the Economic and Social Committee is one of those uh, uh, forums where you can get uh, your voice heard, even if you are from small country, from small organization, or if you represent some specific uh, group of people with uh, specific uh, issues. Yeah? So it's an open space to, to debate, but um, the key still lies in my understanding, how I feel in, after 10 years of, of some work in this uh, Brussels bubble. I still feel it's a battle of uh, really very uneven forces. So as an NGO, trying to do something which is mostly kind of specifically targeted to help our planet heal or to stop the destruction of the planet. Yeah, So it's some universal argument you may have with you and uh, you may kind of, you, you only have your voice as a, as a tool. So what you do, you try to pronounce your support for something or your concerns about something as much as you can, as loud as you can. And on the other side of the table of, of your, uh, let's say, we are talking actually about many tables and about many multifaceted, uh, let's say, lobby battles, yeah? <laughs> lobby, lobby forums. So on the other side, you have industry, which outperforms um, you in all the aspects, in all factors. So, for example, number of lobbyists working in uh, Brussels on behalf of financial industry is calculated at something uh, 1,600. So, on the other side, you may have something like four people from NGOs working on uh, financial issues in Brussels, in the, in, in Brussels bubble, uh, lobbying or advocating for humanity humanitizing of uh, of finance so this huge gap of uh, human power of money power creates of course really uh, big challenges and now the committee comes in with a much more let's say balanced structure as i've said it's a committee of three equal groups one is employers another is workers, and the third is Diversity Europe. So now you have three groups, not just, you know, this 400 against one ratio. You have three equal groups, and you have a lot of tools to uh, to provide your, your views, but they have then to be combined. Now I'm on the specific sustainable finance taxonomy working group, which has to draft an opinion on the topic. The dossier is uh, coming to our uh, 
committee possibly end of April. We are recording this uh, mid-April, but in in a few weeks we will start working on that. And I know that it will be really a challenge to try to reconcile different views, to give some weight to our demands from the civil society point of view. And then, of course, there is industry, which probably wishes to have uh, completely different uh, views reflected in that opinion. But we are now on equal grounds. So it gives me some some hope that this committee could play really a very um, important role because we now have uh, same power as industry in drafting something in comparison to 400 uh, against one ratio when it comes to normal, so-called normal, uh, typical uh, Brussels lobbying activities. And we know this uh, big um, or huge, I would say, uh, difference in uh, in lobby powers exists in, in many industries. It's not only finance, it's uh, also fossil fuels. It's also about, uh, let's say, food. It's, uh, it's about uh, chemicals. It's about so many other industries where civil society advocates are so uh, outnumbered by industry representatives. And, uh, well, uh, going uh, specifically to discuss sustainable finance uh, issue, for me, it's a kind of a key to uh, so many green transitions in uh, Europe. Because if we decide which uh, activities can be deemed green, then probably we can make people investing into those activities. If we put the bar too high in terms of uh, CO2 emitted, then it means you have so many activities described as green that people get lost. And it's truly a challenge and a problem how to properly put the bar and make sure that uh, not-so-green activities are not painted green and we are not engaged in another uh, wave of greenwashing. A lot of greenwashing is going on and sustainable finance taxonomy should not become a tool to provide legal ground for this greenwashing. I don't want, as a person with uh, my savings in a bank, I don't want to invest um, in uh, something which is... uh, let's say, uh, painted green, and uh, my financial uh, advisor at my bank would say, look, this is green fund. They only invest according to taxonomy requirements. They only invest in in green activities. Go forward and uh, invest into this uh, enterprise. You are are fine with that. You are doing a good job uh, for for the planet, and uh, you are supporting... uh, green transition with your money. But wait a bit. If that green includes uh, burning uh, natural gas and producing uh, heat or electricity, emitting 270 grams of CO2 per uh, kilowatt hour uh, produced, sorry, it's not what I intended to do. I want my money to be invested truly green, not into gas burning facilities. So it's now um, one of many ongoing uh, lobby battles, how to put that bar, how high or how low, in order to really uh, make sure that the the regulation, the legislation is uh, supporting green transition, uh, not going against it. So if I understand well, what what you 
do with the European Economic and Social Committee is really to try to to level the playing field and make sure that David and Goliath do have the same tools to start that battle, or at least you 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 try to empower David even more in order to win against Goliath. And that's that's truly what's what's needed when you describe the situation with those powerful uh, lobby groups or the the powerful industry indeed. And I guess that uh, with the taxonomy, there is also this aspect of, for instance, uh, right now with the green bonds oh, yeah. and also yeah. with the the whole discussion about uh, cryptocurrencies and how they are actually polluting or consuming a lot of energy and how do you include them actually in the uh, in the framework because it's it's something quite new and if i if i'm not wrong it's not completely transparent or even completely regulated at the eu level so there is a lot of things going on with those cryptocurrencies and 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 people want to invest in it because it brings i mean it, it's a good investment there is a good return on investment but the uh like uh, environmental impact of these uh, cryptocurrencies can be extremely blurred. Yeah. So, so how do you include <laughs> these kind of uh, of parameters in the discussion? Yes, it's it's a great example. When you have, uh, let's say, okay, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, they are volatile assets, and essentially, there are times they may bring you good uh, profits. So, if you measure your portfolio or your wealth only in terms of uh, getting as high financial return as you can, then, of course, you may be tempted to be engaged into the risky or uh, less risky, but still uh, money-producing activities. And you are only fixed on getting more money out of your money. And that type of thinking was prevalent uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago. When I was a teenager, it was still Soviet times. I was... uh, born in the the former Soviet Union, which was a Lithuanian Socialist Republic in the early 1970s. So that was the time when uh, you could only dream of like uh, probably becoming a banker or a financial broker, stockbroker, dealer in currencies, whatever. So I dreamt about it. And then the capitalism suddenly came (laughs) to our reality. It became a reality. You could not only read books about uh, Western banking uh, attractions, but uh, you can suddenly become one. And, you know, at the start of my career, I was uh, a financial broker. I used to to deal in uh, futures, options, foreign exchange, and uh, other financial instruments. So, but that was, uh, in a way, a representation of this type of thinking that only money matters. So you, you get some capital to manage and you make more capital out of it and you only measure your financial result at the end of the day by how many dollars or euros or any other currency you earned and what is your percentage growth rate on that portfolio and you don't care much what's what's behind that are you investing in polluting or not polluting activities by moving your money from from one asset to another. And the cryptocurrencies mining is probably, the you know, it is now the very ideal representation of that thinking. You don't mine any uh, earth materials, any resources from the earth or the ocean anymore. You just mine money. 
Yeah, it's Bitcoin mining. It's just uh, it it bears this uh, strange name that you only have to get to know how to manage your uh, algorithms and uh, mine uh, currency, mine the new money. It, it's something unbelievable how the world changed in the in the last few decades. So that's you know a really quite extreme representation how money became uh, so important for our society that we forget everything else. And now all the debate about the climate change, about the pollution, about the environmental uh, destruction and uh, need to care for uh, the restoration of Earth, now it brings us back to basics, that at the start of everything, at the start of every supply chain, we have essentially only two really mattering elements. One is sun providing you with energy, with you know heat and light and everything. Another is earth. And you have to take good care of uh, earth because otherwise your, your supply chains are just not existing. You, you don't have anything to mine anymore if your resource base is depleted. So uh, I think the, the the big change in the at least in the minds of uh, of part of society is related that we have to get rid of this money centric approach, and that's why it makes me so fixated on sustainable finance. I think it is a, a key to many things, to many uh, things happening because in today's society, someone who takes care how money is invested is really a ruler of the world. He or she has this enormous power how to deal with, let's say, seven trillion of uh, of pensions money or with uh, 500 billion of some uh, investment fund. Yeah? So it's a matter of uh, responsibility and power. Who has the power to decide? Who has the right to decide how money is invested. And this power now rests in uh, banks, in the offices of money managers, in the offices of uh, pension fund managers. So coming from a NGO, but with uh, this financial background back uh, from my early career years, I see there's a huge potential. If we can make the finance uh, really serve society and serve planet, not to be so much uh, devoted to this uh, capital makes capital, money earns money activities like you described. It's really uh, pure uh, craziness to have uh, uh, money mining firms and because it makes all our life somehow disconnected from that basis uh, we live on. And uh, this basis now needs attention, not our you know, quarterly income statements or uh, dividend reports. In the end, it's not important. In the end is uh, how do we save resources and we produce everything we need for our uh, prosperous lives. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. However, I would make the advocate devil now because some some companies keep on saying like the revenues and the dividends as one of the only ways to assess the the viability, the health of the company and also of their uh, management. I mean, there was the case recently in a, in a French company where the CEO apparently made some like more sustainable investment for the people working in the company for also to uh, make the supply chain a little bit more sustainable. And apparently that wasn't one of the reasons why he was 
was fired from his job. So I would say that it supposed an enormous shift in the mindset also of the investors uh, to see that investing is not only about dividends and the uh, immediate return on investment, but really about the long-term impact that you can have on the people on the planet on the overall uh, making sure that there is no harm made on the lands or on the workers as well. And how do you see that happen? I mean, do you, with the ESC, have a role to play in trying to shape the future boards of investors and uh, the future discussion mm -hmm. over money? Are you the right person to talk with? Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> when we want to change the world and make the the finance serve the people and not only uh, serve money, yeah, I think the key is uh, still in the offices of bankers and in the offices of high commissioners, because sometimes we talk about let's educate consumers, let's make them change uh, their um, uh, consumption habits, let's make them uh, switch to more sustainable choices in their everyday lives and everything will be fine. No, we will not because it is not enough. Same goes with the sustainable finance issue. How much sustainability you want in finance? Would you like to have 20% of sustainable finance in finance? Would you like to have 50%? Because what the other part of finance does, the, the non-sustainable one, is impacting the earth the exactly opposite way you want to impact with your sustainable finance money. Yeah, like, okay, I can change my habits. I can make my investment fund to invest only into... Uh, low impact or uh, uh, doing no significant harm or even uh, providing some benefits for, for the earth activities. I can do that. But if I do that with, uh, let's say, my colleagues and together we make up one-fifth of the financial system, then what the other four-fifths of that system does, what the other part of the system does, is actually going into the opposite directive. So in the end, I earn nothing because the earth is still being destroyed. Yeah, so what we have to feel and probably understand, that's kind of a medium and long-term vision that we do not have luxury to have something on sustainable side while the rest is business as usual. We have to transform the whole system. Everything has to be changed because we want to escape with minimal losses, with uh, probably less than two degrees uh, warming and uh, not so much depleted uh, earth resources. Yeah, we, we, If we want to save the earth, we have to change the whole system, not just some parts of it. And that's your advocating, your devil's advocating, as you put it. It has to be confronted with uh, pure facts that, for example, just, just one small example, that since the Paris Agreement, and it only encompasses uh, three years, 2016 and 19. So banks have invested $2.7 trillion into fossil fuel industry. So it's, it's about investing $3 trillion, almost $3 trillion, into companies which are doing business as usual, and they are harming the planet. Yeah? At the same time, we still calculate the overall impacts of, uh, let's say, green finance, green investing, about the impact investing, only in the area of hundreds of billions. 
in the same league, the amounts of money invested dirty way outweighs the amounts invested green way at a factor probably five to one or ten to one because there is no no statistics, not so much uh, statistical data available. So in the end, we have to really aim truly high because there is lobby pressure, there is uh, inertia, there is sometimes uh, a problem with uh, some countries not uh, not collaborating enough and some industries uh, searching for uh, exceptions and so on. You really have to put the bar very high in order to achieve something, to achieve at least something. And the Economic and Social Committee, of course, it's it's a good forum for me, for uh, me and my colleagues to express our ideas and to be a little bit in uh, kind of vigilant of uh, what's going on on the European policy scene. But we we cannot do everything on our own. We need uh, really uh, to have uh, policymakers on our side. And the European Parliament is in most cases it's the most uh, transparent institution with, uh, let's say, with uh, quite a green ambition, I would say. So we really appreciate uh, when the European Parliament uh, listens and takes into account what the civil society has to say on this. We will see. I'm a realist. I'm the type of optimist with constant reality checks uh, uh, during all the process. <laughs> and uh, I know that things are difficult to be achieved. It's a long road ahead of us, but uh, you only achieve something if you at least try something. <laughs> Otherwise, we would only be left <laughs> to the mercy of uh, fossil fuel uh, lobby industries, uh, industry lobbies. It would really make our planet uh, to uh, hell. Yeah, but it's also interesting to see that many fossil fuels companies like Total are investing more and more into renewable energies and they are also positioning or shifting their, their business core business to all forms of energy than not only fossil fuels. And that's also interesting to see the shift that is uh, progressively happening here. But my last question, I actually wanted to ask you about the consumer perspective, because you come from a consumer association in Lithuania, and you are still very committed to consumer empowerment. And you mentioned several times how people are kind of lost when they have to make some choices regarding their investment and where they, they should be putting their money. And so how do you how do you keep on managing to, thanks to your experience in Lithuania with consumer organization, etc. Also your experience with Burke and uh, the, the consumer organization, European consumer organization. How do you manage to bring up a consumer's priorities, to bring them up on the table, to make sure that everybody is listened to, especially when they come from smaller countries where the economic realities may be very different from the ones you see in, in Western Europe, for instance. So how do you see also this balance happen in the framework of the Green Deal, of the just transition, yeah, etc.? Well, Marine, I have to admit that uh, smaller countries, of course, are somehow disadvantaged, and that's the way things are. I'm realist. Yeah. So in the end, when you are sitting around the same table together with your colleagues from all the 27 EU countries, you have the same voice as everyone has. And uh, if your voice is strong enough, 
if you are able to convince others, if you are able to argue with uh, your uh, rational arguments, or sometimes it's about emotion. Yeah, so you really cannot escape being uh, an emotional person. Yeah, so but with this in mind, with your tools, with your instruments in your possession, you can truly influence policy the same way as big countries do. And pan-European organizations like BEOC, you mentioned, the European um, Consumer Organization, you are respected and heard the same way as the consumer representatives from bigger countries are. So our story is probably a, a good example of success. Back in 2012, I was among the signatories of the Lithuanian Consumers Alliance. We decided we have to combine our forces instead of uh, making our efforts on our own uh, individually. All the small organizations have to create an umbrella organization. And we did that. In 2013, we became members of BEUK. And it also really provided a good boost for our uh, young organization because we got enormous support at the European uh, level from our BEUK uh, friends, BEUK colleagues. So it made us, in a sense, that there are so many examples uh, from BEUK and so much support, which made us believe that small country organizations can be at the forefront of the policymaking in Europe with bringing their uh, specific expertise, their specific experiences, and so on. And especially if you come from the eastern uh, part of the EU, you know that things are really different in your region from what is already kind of a long time uh, forgotten lesson in the West. So you have to go through all those lessons that your Western colleagues learned at school, let's say. So it's it's a region in transition. And we see now how painful this transition is, for example, for several countries which are still attached to fossil fuels, to burning coal, for example. They want this um, transition period to be longer. And they uh, truly argue they need extra financial support for that. And I cannot blame them for this type of uh, attitude. It's normal. It's very practical approach. But uh, in the end, I think let's move on uh, in our imagination 10 or 20 years from now. In the end, we may see that Europe is more prosperous than today and uh, more clean, which is very important. So the, the consumer perspective is a really important one. Of course, we we, we try uh, to influence our behavior, consumer behavior in in our country, in uh, the whole region, to make sure that we learn those lessons as quickly as we can. Yeah, we, we want to catch up and we, we can invest extra effort to make this happen. But it all goes, you know, quite uh, inertical. It requires uh, extra resources, extra, let's say, effort. But uh, coming back to your, to your question about the consumer empowerment and how we work. It's constantly reminding myself that we only have our voice. But with this voice, if you talk uh, important things and if you are committed to what you say and what you do, your voice becomes truly a weapon to achieve your aims. So we are really 
communicating a lot through mass media, and we may, I may say we are heard more and more. We are heard. Our opinions are taken into account, and uh, if we continue with uh, more effort, with uh, clear vision, uh, clear uh, target in sight, we can achieve something. So um, being small means that you are probably, you know, uh, frankly, uh, it means you can say more things compared to if you were from a bigger country. You can, <laughs> let's say, you are uh, potentially less uh, dependent on uh, different outside factors. If you want an example, like imagine uh, working for an NGO which is financed by the government somewhere in, let's say, Slovakia, and uh, this NGO uh, would like to express their negative opinion about uh, Dieselgate or something related to pollution from automobiles. So in the end, you may encounter a problem with your financing because people from the government will say, we are trying to have the bigger uh, factories in our country because we need employment. And these bigger automobile uh, makers, uh, they are providing thousands of jobs to our communities. What are you doing? You, you cannot fight this trend. We need those working places. Yeah, We, we need those well-paying factories uh, in our vicinity, even if the IC vehicles are polluting our uh, nature, yeah? our cities, our harming our uh, health. So we are less dependent on the, on these type uh, of interdependencies in small countries. And uh, I think through us, uh, we can express uh, much wider, wider views. And we are really honest in, in what we say and what we do. We are not uh, dependent on these type of government-related or business-related fundings. Yeah, so you really turn uh, this challenge into an opportunity, an opportunity to be more transparent, to be acting as a middle person between different interests coming from the industry or from the government sectors. And I feel that it's something that came along uh, the whole discussion, how finance is a way to enable things, how you as a member of the European Economic and Social Committee managed to be the middleman between opposite or conflicting interests and how you build the consensus and how you make sure that all those concepts are actually used to building uh, something better for for all of us. So I must say that it has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I'm sure we could <laughs> go on for hours. It's been really great to have you here and thank you so much for all your insights because I, I felt that I've learned a lot today and I'm sure that the listeners have learned a lot as well on the functioning of the European Economic and Social Committee, on sustainable finance, on yes. the role of little organizations. Thank you. Thank you, Marine. Thank well. you. It so, was my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.